for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, good morning, those of you watching from home. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. Today feels a little different than a normal Sunday, obviously, but I hope that you will treat this time uh, in the Word just like it was a normal sermon. And so uh, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and bring it over to the couch maybe where you're sitting and, and turn off your email browser and, and kind of get your phone out of the way and put the dog out, whatever you have to do to sort of eliminate those distractions. And let's focus our attention here on the Word of God as we continue this series through the book of Romans. Uh, if you were here last week, then you may remember where we left off. We said that Paul has been describing sort of a spiritual struggle. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 15, he actually says this. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Now, this was not the experience of a pagan. This was the experience of someone that was very religious, uh, but he was trying to be good by his own willpower, and he found that his will lacked uh, power. He found out that he wanted to, but he, he couldn't. It's not that he didn't uh, desire to do that. It's not that he didn't know what to do and what was right. It's just that he found there was something inside of him that went against what he said he wanted. And Paul said, the thing that is inside of me is the thing that I call sin with a capital S. Now, I would imagine that you have a theory on uh, why you do the things that, that you do. This is Paul's theory, and we learned last time uh, that we had an object lesson, and, and I'll just move over here to remind you that we said everyone in the whole human race was born in Adam and that we were born in sin. And we said last time that uh, really we're not sinners because we sin. We said that we sin because we're sinners. In other words, we're not actually good people, which makes a whole lot of sense to me because I can understand why, why a good person does bad things. I, I can't understand why a bad person would ever do, uh, would ever do uh, I, I can't understand why, why a bad person would do good things sometimes because after all, there is some personal benefit sometimes to doing things that are good. But I can never understand why a, why a good person would ever do bad things. That doesn't make any sense to me. And Paul says, well, it makes perfect sense to him. He says the reason why is because we're in Adam and we are in sin. That's what we said last week. He, he says a couple verses later, what a wretched man that I am which means that Paul was not wrestling with something small, right? He wasn't wrestling with, like, I forgot to water the plants or something like that. He, he's wrestling with something that's, that's big and ugly, and he calls it wretched. And, and he says, what a wretched man that I am. And as uh, strong as that statement is, I think a lot of us can relate to that. And we sometimes interact with this struggle, too, and we think, what a wretched man that I am, or what a wretched woman that I am, or what a wretched... Uh, parent that I am, or what a wretched husband I am, or what a wretched wife I am, or what a wretched teenager I am, or what a wretched college student that I 
am. And so here's often the question that we ask. We say, what will rescue me? What will rescue me? What can I do? This is what we think, right? What? What new you know, method can I try? What, what new idea can I turn to? What new book can I read? And, and here's the thing for Paul. Paul says, that's the wrong question. Instead, he says this, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? See, for Paul, it's not a what, it's a, it's a who. The answer is not a what, it, it's a who. Who will rescue me? And then he says this amazing verse. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, for Paul, he has found the solution to this age-old problem in the person of of Jesus Christ. And so if I could go back over here for a moment, we said last time that if you are uh, in Adam and you have placed your faith in Christ, then you have been transferred from Adam into Christ. And just as what was true of Adam was true of you, now what is true of Christ, if you have come to him by faith, is now true of you. Uh, the scripture says elsewhere, as he is, so are we in this world. We have been placed in Christ. And so that's Paul's solution to this age-old problem. That's about as far as we got last week. We've moved from death to life, Paul said. We moved from sin to grace. We moved from condemnation to justification. And now we're entering into a brand new section in the book of Romans. In chapter one through five, we have been talking about justification. And now in chapter six through eight, we're going to talk about what's called sanctification. Big word. Uh, Justification means that I am free from sin's penalty, whereas sanctification means I'm free from sin's power. Justification is a static condition. It, it, it's a one-time event. It never changes, whereas sanctification is, is progressive in this life. It's a maturing process. Justification, we saw, was entirely God's work, whereas sanctification actually has some shared responsibility for you and I. See, justification had to do with substitution. He died for me, whereas sanctification has to do with identification, meaning I died with him. Now, I know that's a lot. We'll spend several weeks unpacking that chart together, but this is where we're headed in Romans 6 through 8. It's about how God is working in us through his Holy Spirit to conform us to the very image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the question on the table this morning is, how? How? How can we actually be free from sin's power? How can I live in the reality of what Christ has done for me? How can I avoid wasting years in defeat when when the victory has been secured. How do we actually change? What's the nature of authentic Christian change? And how is it different from other models of change, other religious systems that talk about change, or other philosophical systems that talk about change? And what I've found as a pastor is that many people have a very simplistic model of change. Many people prefer just like a list of do's and don'ts. Pastor Dave, that's too complicated. Can you just give me the list? Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Give me a list. But remember, this is how the Pharisees were. Lots of lists, lots of rules. And unfortunately, that model of change will always fall short. Instead, we've got to get underneath of our reasons for sinning, and we've got to get to the motivational level underneath of there, and we've got to grow ourselves like a tree, like a giant redwood, strong and rooted in the truth of Christ. And if we don't learn that, then we won't be strong like a tree. We'll be like one of those little cattails in the swamp that I saw driving here today, like just a tiny little plant that doesn't have much root and, and frankly, will blow right over. We want to make a church full of trees rooted in the truth of God. That's where we're headed in this section of Romans. 
And as we go there, let me just give you a personal invitation. Let me encourage you to personalize this for you. Right now, I want you to think about some area in your life where you would really like to change, where God is calling you to change. Uh, perhaps some, there's some habit that, that you know you have. Maybe even right now with this situa- situation across our country, you're experiencing some anxiety with this situation, and maybe God is calling you to deal with your anxiety in a new way. Or maybe there's just some other area in your life that, that you're ready to leave behind, and you're wondering how. Today, as we look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, I want you to see that Paul is going to give us three essential steps in this sanctification process. The first step, he's going to say there's something that you need to know. And then step two, he's going to say there's something you need to consider. And then finally, step three, he says there's something that you need to offer. Something to know, something to consider, and something to offer. That's where we're headed in the message today. Before we go there, let's pray together. Even at home, would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's ask for God's help in our time in his word now. Dear God, you have told us in the scriptures that we are to be holy for you are holy. Help us to live out this high calling, not by our power, but by your power. And help us not to stop short of all that you have prepared for us. We ask that you would make us and shape us and conform us into the very image of Jesus Christ. And we pray that for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Okay, open up your Bible. Uh, To begin, let me just remind you of the context here. You might remember at the very end of chapter 5, Paul said this. He said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, at this point, Paul is anticipating an objection from his readers. And see if you can follow this line of thinking. The readers might think, well, Paul, if grace is so good, and we like it, we we love it, we want some more of it, then, then we could be tempted to think, that by association, grace in a way makes sin acceptable. And so as a means to an end, maybe sin has some redeeming value. Here comes the objection in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, if it's really all by grace, and if my good works are like filthy rags before God, if they're worthless for my own salvation, why should I be good at all? In other words, doesn't this message of grace, Paul, leave the door open to immoral living? Do you see the logic there? Interestingly, the great expositor Martin Lloyd-Jones said when he was preaching about grace, he said, if you react that way to my statements, I am most happy For I am obviously a good and true interpreter of the Apostle Paul. In other words, this objection only makes sense if Paul is really saying salvation is only by grace and grace alone, not by works, which he is. And so there's the objection. Now, what's Paul's response? Paul says this, by no means, by no means, strongest possible negative in the Greek language. The NASB says, may it never be. The New Living Translation, of course not. Holman Christian Standard Bible, absolutely not. And the old King James, God forbid. The root of this phrase is actually the word for life. Paul is saying, may such a thought never be born inside of you. May it never even come into existence. Never, never, never think that sin is somehow a good thing. Uh, Turn to your neighbor at home there on the couch and say, sin is bad. Sin is bad, right? If that's all you got out of the message today, I think we're doing okay. Sin is, is not good. 
committing sin so that grace might increase, that's like drinking poison just because you had a cure. The poison is still poison. It is not good just because you have the antidote. See, in the Christian life, there's two extremes. There's two dangerous extremes that we have to be mindful of. One extreme is legalism, where we live self-righteously and, and we live like the Pharisees. And we, from our pious perch, we, we judge and condemn others. This is a great danger, a great stumbling block. We've talked a lot about self-righteousness in our series so far. But there is an equally other dangerous extreme here called being a libertine. A libertine is a Christian who openly and often engages in sin because they're confident in their salvation and God's forgiveness. They know they are sinning, but they somehow reconcile their sin and their faith because of God's grace. This is a dangerous way of thinking. It's condemned in our passage. Paul says, by no means, we must never fall into the casual and comfortable relationship with sin like that. Why not? Uh, He goes on to say this, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, this is a rhetorical question. That means Paul does not expect an answer. Instead, he expects us to see the answer like embedded inside the question. Uh, parents watching today, you know what I'm talking about. It's like when you walk into your teenager's room and you say, how can you say this room is clean when there's clothes strung all over the floor? Well, you're not really expecting an answer, right? The answer is inside the question. The answer is you can't. Paul is saying, how can you who died to sin live in it any longer? You can't. Now, some of you might say, Pastor Dave, yes, you can. Trust me, I, I'm, I'm totally convinced. Let me, it's very easy to live in sin. I do it every day. I, I don't need uh, your help here or even a reminder. Uh, it comes very naturally to me, actually. But Paul says, no, you're not getting it. I used to do that too, but in light of this new reality, there's a new way. The idea of how can we live in it has the idea of an ongoing pattern of sin. No change No effort to even try to change, just a toleration of sin like it's not even a problem in the first place. No progress with it. To practice sin habitually, continually, unremittingly, and without diminishment. It is to sin deliberately without distaste. But Paul says once you've accepted Christ, you can't live in a casual, comfortable relationship with sin. Paul says, that's not possible anymore. In light of everything I've talked about, why would you want to live that way? Why would you keep saying yes to sin. Then Paul says this, don't you know? Or don't you know that that all of us who, who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Don't you know? Remember the, the first section of our message today, point one, is there's something we need to know Paul says what you need to know is something about your baptism. Uh, Now, the whole idea behind baptism is it was a symbol of these three things, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Whenever I have the great privilege of baptizing someone, I tell them right before we go into the tank, I said, I want you to think big thoughts in here. Don't think little thoughts. Little thoughts are like, oh, is this the right shirt I should be wearing? Or, you know, is anybody looking at me? Or what's I'm, what am I going to look like with all my hair that gets all wet? Those are little thoughts. I said, no, no, no. Think, think big thoughts here. Uh, think about how you were united to Christ in his death. 
What that means is when he died, it's as if you died. And then he says you were buried. See, that's why here at Millington Baptist Church, we practice baptism by immersion. There's a symbolic burial that's, that's going on there, signifying that the old me has died. That's what my baptism means. Now, I don't want to be morbid, but have you ever tried to tempt a corpse? No. Corpses don't sin. Dead people can't sin. Once you die, you'll never be tempted to sin again. And Paul is saying this, in a mystical sense, in a spiritual sense, that's already happened to you. You died. When Jesus died, he says, I died. When Jesus died, I died. Say that with me at home, would you? When Jesus died, I died. Now, here's the good news. Nobody stays under the water of baptism. We come up out of the water, right? Why? Because in Christ, after death, comes new life. This is what we celebrate at Easter in just a few weeks. Because Christ was raised, we were raised and given new life as well. See, this is the significance of baptism. If I could go over here to these props again. When you were baptized into Christ, you received a new identity and you were taken out of Adam and you were placed into Christ so that what is true about Christ is now true of you and you identify with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection in the spiritual realm. That's the deep and symbolic uh, sacrament that we're given here of, of baptism. This is what theologians actually call our union with Christ. There's this one phrase that's used by Paul 73 times in all of his letters put together. It's this, this phrase, in Christ. Uh, let me give you a few examples you're probably familiar with. Ephesians 2.10, you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, there's another example I found this week in Romans chapter 16. Take a look at this one. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. This is the way they referred to being a Christian back then. They were in Christ. There's this union with Christ. Paul goes on in verse 6 to say this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from, symbol, from sin. Our baptism is a symbol of, of this. This is what you need to know, Paul says. In other words, that part of you that has been ruled by sin is no longer being ruled by sin. Now, at this point, you might say, wait a minute, are you sure about that, Pastor Dave? Just try this on. What if sin actually has lost its power over you? What if you actually have a lot more freedom than you think you do? What if there is more victory available for you? Though sin may seem too powerful to resist, Paul says that is not the case. Friends, there's, what I'm trying to say this morning is that there is more victory available in the Christian life than we think there is. There's more. There is more, there is more, there is more. This is what we need to know. Now, we not only need to know something, Paul says there's also something you need to consider and this leads us to the next section. The word consider was actually an accounting term. It means to count or to reckon or to, to factor in or to consider, to take a look at. So those of you accountants, you can take note of this passage. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to count ourselves or consider ourselves dead to sin. Now, the phrase dead to sin, you might say, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean I'm no longer going to sin? Well, of course, we know it doesn't mean that. Is it that we, we somehow renounce sin? But actually, I want you to see here that it's actually not something that we do at all. This is something that's been done for us. Tim Keller says it this way, the moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under the ruling power of sin. This is what you need to consider, and this is your primary identity right now. See, when a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity. Why wouldn't they sin? But when a Christian sins, they're acting against their identity. Why would they sin? See, if I sin, it's because I've forgotten who I am and forgotten all that's been done for me when I was transferred from Adam into Christ. Think of this concept like a legal right or like a, like a trust fund that you've been entrusted to be in charge of, that, that it's in your name and now you can choose to uh, use it or not use it, but this has been a special stewardship that's been delegated to you. And when you don't use it, you're, you're in a sense abdicating the power that's available to you right now. And so Paul says this, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Paul says, do not let. Paul says, do you realize that when you say yes to sin, you're letting sin reign over you? Paul says, you can either let it happen or not let it happen. And in that moment, the choice is yours. Now, let me make a caveat here. I'm not saying as Christians, that we're going to be absolutely perfect now. Uh, one of my professors at seminary, Harold Honer, said something very important about this text. He said, remember, class, though you have died to sin, sin itself did not die. That's an important distinction. This is an ongoing struggle, but it's a struggle where real victory is available moment by moment because of the power of God at work inside you and me. Friends, this verse teaches us two things. First, that it is very possible as a Christian to live a life with victory over sin. And secondly, this verse teaches that it's very possible to be a Christian and not live a life of victory over sin. You can let sin reign in your mortal body or you can not let sin reign in your mortal body. The choice is yours. But as long as you identify with who you used to be, then you will continue to behave how you used to behave. The key word, I think, here in this verse is that word reign. To reign means to, to give a place of prominence to or a place of honor or authority to. We are not to give free reign to sin. This is so important. When you wrestle with sin, the question is, which side of the identity here do you, do you, agree, do you sort of identify with? Let me just move over to the table again. See, if you are... Uh, wrestling with sin and you identify more with being in Adam, then here's what your thought monologue will sound like. Well, you know, I really just can't help it. Or, you know, this is just natural. Or this is just, you know, it's normal. Or, you know, I can't have any victory over me. Or there's some other excuses or you're blaming. That's what it sounds like to identify with being in Adam. But if you identify with the fact that you are now in Christ, you now have a completely different thought process. You start thinking, well, 
wait a minute, that's sin. That's trying to reign over me. That's sin trying to overpower me. And sin no longer has power over me. I can now in Christ have victory over this sin because I am a new creation in Christ. So there's a totally different way of thinking and wrestling with sin in terms of our identity. Now that I'm in Christ, I can say I've had enough of that. I've been set free of that. Now the victory is won. This is what we need to consider to be the case. But many Christians do not live as if this were the case. Let me try to give you an example. World War II started in 1939, and it ended in 1945. It lasted six years and one day. Now, six years is a long time for a world war. Yet, Shoichi Yokoi, a Japanese soldier, continued to fight in the jungles of Guam until he was discovered and removed on January 24, 1972. He'd been fighting a war that had been over for 28 years. He was not alone. Uh, Hiroo Onoda continued to fight in the Philippines until March 9, 1974. And Tero Nakamura battled away in Indonesia until December 18, 1974. He was the last soldier of World War II to surrender, over 30 years after the war's conclusion. It's incredible to consider that for so many years, these men refused to believe what was true, that the war was in fact over. They concluded that the flyers that were dropped in the jungles and other attempts to convince them of the war's end were just tricks of the enemy. They spent the majority of their lives living in a manner inconsistent with reality. And while we might find it easy to judge these men as fools, our text today is arguing that you and I do the same thing with respect to a different war, God's war on sin. Our text is teaching us that often you and I live seemingly unaware that a great victory over sin has been won by Jesus on the cross. We live as if the outcome is in doubt when in fact sin has been defeated utterly and decisively. We can find ourselves sometimes for years or decades living in a manner very inconsistent with what the Scripture says is a spiritual reality. And so Paul says to live a victorious life, we must stop and think. We must consider what is true and what is false. This is what these three soldiers failed to do. They heard the truth, but they did not consider it or calculate it to be true for them. This is what we need to consider which leads us to our final section. There's something we need to know, there's something we need to consider, but there's also something we need to offer. We see this in verse 13. Paul says this, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Notice that word, instrument. It's the Greek word for a weapon of war. See, I used to offer part of myself as a weapon of war to fight against the God of the universe, to fight on the side of the enemy. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, he says, offer. This is the key word here. We're, we're not to offer parts of ourselves to sin. Instead, I'm to offer myself to God. Think of it this way. Those of you who uh, run a business, when you, when you hire a new employee, they usually show up on the first day, right? They offer themselves 
to their new boss for their new assignment. Now, how strange would it be for a new employee at your company on their very first day to show up at their old workplace? Paul says, don't offer yourself to your old master. Instead, offer yourself to Jesus Christ. And here, he's talking about literal body parts. It's a little bit graphic, like members of your body. He says, sin wants to use your own body against you. For example, uh, those of you guys who are watching today, uh, sin's going to say, hey, can I borrow your eyes? Can I, can I borrow your eyes and make you look at the wrong thing today? Uh, can I borrow your hands? Sin's going to say, hey, can I borrow your, your mind? Sin's going to say, can I borrow your feet and take you where you shouldn't go? And you say, sure, sin, you can have my feet. Sure, sin, you can have my thumbs. Sure, sin, you can have my mouth. I'm going to say whatever you want me to say. I'm going to say something harsh here. Sure, sin, you can have my mouth. Sure, sin, you can have my whole body. Paul says, do not offer any part of your body as an instrument of wickedness anymore. Now, he says, I want you to say this. Say, no, sin. No, sin, you can't have my hands. No, sin, you cannot have my feet. No sin, you cannot have my mouth today. No sin, you cannot have my mind. No sin, you cannot have anything. I'm not going to give you my hands. I'm not going to give you my feet. I'm not going to give you my arms. I'm not going to give you any member of my body. I'm done being your slave. Instead, he says, offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, where you literally offer or present or devote your whole body to God. Some of you in the morning, you have what you call your morning devotional time right? Where you devote yourself to God for that day. That's a very good thing. And in that moment, you can say, God, today I'm going to give you my hands. God, today I'm going to give you my eyes because at some point I know that sin's going to want to borrow my eyes. God, today, this morning, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give you my feet because sin's going to want to take me and go somewhere where I shouldn't go. So I'm going to give my feet to you. God, I'm going to give you my mouth. Sin's going to want me to say things that I should not be saying. And, and sin's going to come and say, Dave, just say it. Just say it. Just let it fly, Dave. God, I'm going to give you my mouth. I'm going to offer my whole body today to you, God. It's like that old hymn that says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Today I'm going to offer myself to God. Why am I going to do that? He concludes with this powerful verse. Final verse for today. Verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under law. You're not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master. You know, I used to play basketball, and I had this basketball coach who was just brutal, and he used to make us run suicides. Some of you know what that means. You start at the baseline, and you go to the foul line, back and forth, half court, and all of that. Just torture. Whenever he would blow the whistle, I did what he said. 
If not, I was off the team, right? But here's the thing. I don't play under his authority anymore. If I pass by my coach today and he goes, Dave, get in line for suicides, I'm going to be like, coach, I'm getting in line for Dunkin' Donuts, man. I'm not, I'm not, uh, the heck with that. Why? He has no authority over me anymore. That's the way it is in the Christian life. Sin is no longer your authority. Sin is no longer your master. Now, why is that? Look very carefully. Look at that word, because. Because. Paul says, the reason I can be free from sin has to do with my relationship with the law. You're not under law, but under grace. Because here's what we've discovered, and here's what Paul discovered, and here's what we all need to be reminded of. The law can't help you win this fight. The law can't help you. The law can only remind you. The law can only remind you how much you fall short. It's just a mirror. That's the problem with the law. Even if I keep the law, it's a problem. If I break the rules, I feel all guilty. If I keep the rules, I feel all proud and self-righteous. And so no matter which way I go, both ways, I'm still focused on myself to provide my own sense of self-righteousness. Do good, get rewarded. Do bad, get punished. There's just no end to this battle under the law. Andy Stanley says it well. Approaching God through the law is our default, but it eventually leads to defeat. Paul says, if you want to live free from sin, you have to sever your relationship with the law because you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we do whatever we want now? Is that, is that what he's saying? Well, of course not. Remember, by no means, may it never be. Remember where we began our text today. Paul, Paul had to answer that objection about grace as if grace could lead to more sinning. Paul says, actually, no, it's exactly the opposite. Grace, he says, is actually the only thing powerful enough to break the power of sin. That's the problem with the law. Friends, the problem with the law is the law causes me to focus on myself. Grace causes me to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I behold him, I'm conformed into his image. It's only as I break away from my sense of works-based self-righteousness and understand grace that the power of sin is broken in your life and in mine. Grace is not just pardon, it's power. Because it's easy to sin against the law. It's hard to sin against the Heavenly Father who has a heart of love for me. So Paul says grace is the key to unlock the secret to having victory and living the Christian life. This is why Paul will say later in chapter 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. There's an old hymn by Charles Wesley, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, where it says this, He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. He breaks the power of canceled sin. This is what Paul is talking about. First, God cancels the sin. Then he breaks the power of the canceled sin. In other words, Paul says, first comes justification, then comes sanctification. This is how you're set free, and now you and I have a choice. You and I need to choose to live in that freedom. You can be free. But there's something you need to know. There's something that you need to consider. And there's something that you need to offer. Let me close with one more story as the worship team comes back up. A number of years ago, I had a rather unique experience of going to the circus. 
To say the least, it was fascinating. I was able to walk around looking at the lions and the tigers and the giraffes and all the other circus animals, and as I was passing by the elephants, I suddenly stopped, confused by the fact that these huge creatures were only being held by this small little rope. No chains, no cages. It was obvious that the elephants could at any time break away from their bonds, but for some reason they did not. And I asked someone why these beautiful, magnificent animals just stood there and made no attempt to get away. Well, he said, when they were very young and much smaller, we used the same size rope to tie them. And at that age, it's enough to bind them. It's enough to hold them. And as they grow up, they are conditioned to believe that they cannot break away. They believe the rope can still hold them, so they never try to break free. I was amazed. These animals could at any time break free from their bonds, but because they believed they couldn't, they were stuck right where they were. Friends, like the elephants, how many of us go through life hanging onto a belief that we cannot do something simply because we failed at it once before? How many of us are being held back by old, outdated beliefs that no longer serve us? How many of us have avoided trying something new because of a limiting belief? This passage is Paul coming right up to you and cutting the rope. Because he says, don't you know that when Christ died, the power of sin was broken in your life and mine? Don't you know that sin is not your master? Can we say that together? You there at home on your couch, I want you to say that with me. Ready? Sin is not your master. Master, you need to tell yourself that every single day. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for preserving this amazing scripture. We thank you that 2,000 years ago, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and be buried and be raised to new life, not just simply so that we could go to heaven when we die, though we will, When we place our faith in him, there is also now available to us a new power and a new strength over the power of the tyrant of sin. Help us now to live in the victory that you have already accomplished on our behalf. We thank you that we are now dead to sin and alive to God. And today we offer our whole selves to you. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody watching at home said... Amen. Let's worship together.